Hey, this is Dan Kogan. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Family in Pleasant Hill, Missouri, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today and let you know you matter to us because you matter to God. Enjoy the message. We're going to look at the 12 disciples. Last week, we did a background, just sort of an overview. I want to remind you of that, that there were many who followed Jesus and that there was a progression in the 12 that were chosen. First, their conversion where they acknowledged Jesus was was the Messiah. Even though they didn't fully grasp what that meant, they knew he was the chosen one and came to see him as the true incarnate Son of God. And then there was a a call to to follow him, Uh, the call to leave everything behind, their jobs and, and their lives, and follow him consistently came later, and that was for about 18 months that they followed him, the last 18 months of his life. And then there came that call to be apostles, to go and take that message uh, across the globe, and then finally the call really to give their life. So you see this progression in these disciples. And we talked also, remember, about the fact that there were 12 of them uh, for a specific reason, Really, because there were 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12, the, the Israel had rejected the Messiah, and, and the, uh, the Scripture makes it clear that at one day, uh, they will set in judgment over them. So, there was, a, there was a, a sense of judgment, you know, and rather than 12 high priests, 12 very learned people, 12 men with great knowledge, wisdom, experience, Jesus 12, chose 12 very common and very eclectic and very different kinds of men, uh, knowing that that it, it pleases God to use the foolish things to confound the wise. So there's, there's truth in that as, as well. Uh, so some great background on them, and they are so diverse. And also, Jesus, in the first 18 months of his ministry, is preaching to the crowds, but in the last 18 months, his constant desire is to get away with the 12. And as we'll find out this morning, even a smaller group than that, he doesn't spend an equal amount of time with all 12. And so it really does help us understand, and this is one of the truths I want you to take away from this study and maybe from today, is the absolute necessity of of, of small groups, of two or three or four men or women together who are who are fighting for the gospel and battling for the for the good of 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 the, the name of Christ and growing in discipleship. You don't do this on your own, and it's not enough just to come to a large group. There, there needs to be a discipleship, a, a growing in Christ, and, and a commitment to one another, really in a small gathering. And that's something that we often lack in our churches today. We don't give opportunity for that. We don't seem to really encourage that. That's discipleship. And, and you can have some degree of discipleship in a Sunday school class or a, a group of 12 or 14 that might meet in a home. But Jesus' real discipleship ministry happens even in a smaller group than that. So take your Bibles. Let's look at the list of disciples. In chat, they're, they're in all the Gospels, but we'll look at Matthew chapter 10, and we'll see the list there. Matthew chapter 10. And Jesus called his 12 disciples and gave, him authority, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every deeds and every affliction. At this point, these are men that are no longer just following him, but he's called 12 specific men to him. And they list the names. So in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, the one who's called Peter, 
and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Or that, that doesn't really resonate with us, so what you want to read there when you read tax collector is the collaborator with the Roman authorities. <laughs> Matthew, the collaborator with, if he was in France in 1941, he'd be Matthew, the collaborator with the Nazis. That's what it would be. When he, tax collector means collaborator. He's, he's one of his own people, but he's working for the Romans in a very oppressive way. That's important. I'm sorry. Verse 3, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, son, the James of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then if you look at Mark, if you wanted to look over there, if you just want to listen, but Mark chapter 3, they're listed again. Mark chapter 3, verse 16. Stay with me. It gets more exciting later. Mark chapter 3, verse 16. He appointed 12. Simon, who he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, who, and the sons of Thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And Simon the Canaan and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then in Luke chapter 6, again, they're listed. And this listing is important. In Luke chapter 6, verse 14, we read this. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then, I won't bother with it, but they're also listed as well in Acts 1.13. The same listing, the same order. Uh, except Judas Iscariot is not listed because he has committed suicide and he's replaced with another so there would be 12 apostles. Well, what's the importance of the fact that in each of the Gospels and in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and, in, and in, in Acts, they're listed in the same order, especially in groupings. They're always listed in groupings. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, that's the first group. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John, we hear more about, we see more stories about. There is more dialogue recorded between them and Jesus and, them one, and one another than all the others. So there is very much an inner circle of disciples of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And then there's a second level of disciples, or a second group of disciples that are always listed together. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. And we have some discussion about these guys. You know, Thomas, and we'll talk about him at length, uh, who's, who's called Doubting Thomas, but he's not. And Matthew, and how he was called, and, and also Philip, and how he brought people. and all, we'll, we'll get into all of that. But you have Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. And then there's a third group that's always lumped together. And we know almost nothing about them except for Judas Iscariot. James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, Thaddeus, Simon from Canaan, and then Judas Iscariot. So, we're going to look at these, and, and I just want you to realize that even though there were 12, they, they, they really were sort of a, 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 a group that was more intimate and spent more time with Jesus. There are times that Jesus pulls that first group of four away for different things. And then there, even among that four of, 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 of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, obviously... As you look at the New Testament, Peter, Andrew, and John really even spend more time with Jesus. So there's almost a three, uh, Peter, James, and John, rather. There's almost a three that becomes even more intimate. But what we're going to talk about this morning is the fact that in every list, without any doubt, without any question, one of them is always named first, right? 
and that's Peter. Now, the good news for those of us in here this morning who aren't type A leaders is that there weren't 12 Simon Peters in the group. Do you get that? That's worth coming to church here for this morning. When Jesus picked 12 disciples, he didn't find 12 equally bold, brash, out there, Simon Peter. He only had one. Now, James and John, they were high-quality high leaders, certainly, and, 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 uh, and a few others that, that from time to time we would see that would be outstanding there. Andrew, obviously. Those four. But, but nobody competed with Peter in terms of always being the lead guy. Always being the lead guy. And that's good because some of us in this room are of that type. We, we are the lead person. We are someone of a strong personality. Someone who, when you walk into a room, you know, we're sort of the natural leader of that. But most of us aren't. But guess what? None of the 11 were either. <laughs> but they were important and viable. And especially we get down to the last four. You, you think that, why is there not much ink about the last four disciples? Is it because they weren't important? No, we'll, we'll get there. Hang with me. Some of you are going to be very delighted to find out you have a very important role in the kingdom, even though you're never heard of or seen, or, but you play a very important role. So you, you get what I'm saying. When Jesus chose the 12, he didn't do what most of us would do. We would find the 12 strongest leaders. Well, that could cause some issues, frankly, put them all in a room. There were issues anyway among especially these top four. The top four were always competing with one another about who was going to be the greatest, but I think they all knew Peter had something going that was different than the others. But the groups are always listed in this order, and that has to do with a a real level of of intimacy with Christ. Uh, The first group, again, Peter, James, and John, especially those three, even a closer circle, Andrew at times is not in that. Those three, Peter, James, and John, were taken with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. That's where Jesus took those three, and he brought them up there, and for a moment they saw Jesus transfigured from a human man to really the glory of God. And not only that, they saw Elijah and Moses and saw Jesus conversing with Elijah and Moses. Group two doesn't have any high profile, but they are still significant in the gospel accounts. And then, as I said, we'll talk about group three later on. Obviously, Judas is the exception to that. But they were all very different personalities. Are you tracking with me? These are all very different personalities. We are all in a church together, and we're all very different personalities. And if it hadn't been for their commitment and their following of Jesus, they would have been at each other's throats all the time. And so when we're talking about a church family, we can't, we can't create a church family where everybody gets what they want all the time. Everybody always feels like they're the most important. It's not going to work. What works is we can have a very diverse church family with very different personalities, strong personalities, quiet personalities, bold personalities, shyer personalities. We can have all of those, but if they're centered around Christ and focused on Him, they can all their strengths and weaknesses can work together for the glory of God. And you'll see that in these amazing disciples in these weeks ahead as we look together. So Simon Peter. Well, 
First of all, he was often the first one to speak, right? We know that. I mean, over and over again, he speaks out first and foremost. Let's look at some stories about Simon Peter and his actions for first. First, you remember when they were in the storm out on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus had sent them out there alone, and they're out there, and it's in the fourth watch of the night. It's the darkest hour of the night. The storm is so violent that they actually fear for their lives. Now, Peter and James and John, these were fishermen. They, all, they, they did this for a living. They spent their whole life on, the, on this lake called the Sea of Galilee, and, and there were tremendous storms that could come up, and they'd seen them before, but this one was was different. This one, they knew men had drowned. They probably personally knew men who had, I know they knew men who had drowned in, in, the, in the Sea of Galilee, and they no doubt were terrified and, and certainly were wondering, well, if Jesus put us on this boat and this storm comes up and he's not with us, maybe he knew something we didn't, right? I mean, how, why in the midst of this terrible storm is he not here? All of us can identify with that. Sometimes when, when life really begins to push in on us and, and crowd in on us and, and, and close in on us, we, we, we don't always feel like Jesus is near. Oftentimes we feel like he's far away and distant and out of sight. And from the disciples' perspective, Jesus was out of sight. But from Jesus' perspective, he knew exactly where they were, exactly what the storm was going on. I have a pastor friend. I don't know him really well, but know of him, and I've gotten to know him on social media. He has, he's battling cancer, and his daughter works at the North American Mission Board, and I didn't realize that. I was there a couple of weeks ago and did some, some speaking and, and some teaching, and, and she was in the group, and, and as she prays for her dad, she has a hashtag that uh, says, No Maverick Cells. And what she means by that is every cell in her dad's body is under the control of God. There are no maverick cells. And whatever God determines to do, he can do. Now, it may not appear that way, right, when you're battling the disease and the illness, and, and it, but, but, but that is so true. There's no maverick storms in your life. God knows every storm. He knows every wind. He knows everything. And so here's Simon Peter and these disciples. They're in the boat. And in the fourth watch of the night, they look out. And in the midst of the, of the, of the darkness, they see this figure coming to them on the water. They're terrified. It's a ghost. And Jesus says, again, fear not. As I said, there's over 300 times in the scripture where we're told not to be afraid. Fear, And the reason for that is because there's a lot to be afraid of. That's why. It is not so much that we're just a bunch of scaredy cats here. It's that this world is a fearful place. So the constant reassurance to don't be afraid. And do fear not, and, and it is I. And Peter says what? Lord, if it's you, bid me come. John didn't say it. James didn't say it. Thaddeus didn't say it. Judas didn't say it. Uh, Thomas didn't say it. Matthew didn't say it. Peter said it boldly. If it's you, bid me come. And Jesus said, come. And Peter does something none of the others do. He gets out of the boat. Now look, I don't know about you, but... A storm could be bad, but I'd rather be in the boat than out of the boat in a storm. I would rather be in the boat, because at least in the boat I can hold on for dear life. At least in the boat I have a chance of riding it out. At least in the boat I'm there with other people. But to step out of the boat... Now look, you don't ever step... There's some, first of all, there's a requisite for stepping out of the boat. And you can... Whatever the boat is in your life, whatever... For the, the requisite for stepping out of the boat is you hear from Jesus. And Jesus told Peter to come. And you're dumb to get out of the boat if he doesn't tell you to come. All right? So, so don't be doing something in your own flesh and in your own power and in your own strength 
If you don't hear from God, if he doesn't call you to do it, then don't do it. Don't be guilted into it because the church needs you to do it. Don't be guilted into it. But if Jesus calls you to do it, you can get out of the boat. So Peter gets out of the boat. And when he gets out of the boat and he's looking at Jesus, he's walking on the water. That is, that is absolutely perfect Simon Peter. The first one to acknowledge Jesus. The first one to take a step of action. The first one to boldly do something. And then it's absolutely Simon Peter to be the first one to fail miserably. You'll see over and over again in Peter's life. Not only is he a natural leader and the first one to speak, he's also a natural first one to fail. He has both. And some of you live with people who, you know, I'm not Peter. I am not Simon Peter. I'm not saying that. But if I want to do something, I had a wonderful uh, uh, ministry assistant for years at Warnell Road Baptist Church. And then when I first started working for the North American Mission Board, she, she worked with me for a while. And uh, she knew me well. Her husband was one of our elders. And she said, if Mark wants to do something, there are two ways of doing it. Over the top and way over the top. And that's Peter. I mean, there's two ways of doing it with Peter. Over the top and way over the top. But also, Mark has this ability to completely collapse and completely get, get, go, go the other way. And, and, and that's Peter. There's a sense in which Peter can do, he, in one moment he can shine, but also in the next moment he can fail. And the other disciples, some of them are more in between. They're kind of in the middle. You know, they're sort of there. Some of you can relate to that, that, that burst of real desire to be with Jesus, real desire to do something above yourself. And you do, and that's great. But look, this side of heaven, we're not perfect. And we're not going to sustain that level. And the adversary knows it. And Peter learns from this. And, and this is just one example. So you get the, 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 the requisite for getting out of the boat is a word for, from Jesus. The reason to get out of the boat is to go see Jesus. He was closer to Jesus than he was any the other disciples. He wanted to be where Jesus was. That was his motivation. His motivation was not safety. His motivation was not security. His simple motivation was, I want to be where Jesus is. But then as he gets out there on the water, he begins to realize this is not something that men can do. And I'm not Jesus. And he begins to, he be, and as he takes his eyes off of Christ, he begins to sink. That's what happens when pastors, when parents, when people, when believers, when you take your eyes off the Christ and you look at the world, you're going to sink because the world's a terrifying place. There's much to be afraid of. As I said, the reason so many scriptures say fear not is there's much to be afraid of. And we're and this side of heaven, dear saint, you are not going to be able to keep your eye on Jesus all the time. You, and we'll talk about how Peter learned about that. And sure enough, he didn't. But here's, here's the greatest reward for getting out of the boat. You get to fail. You get to fail. Most of us, the reason we don't do anything in the church, anything for Christ, is because we're afraid of failure. The reason those disciples didn't ask, Lord, do you want me to come? is perhaps they were afraid he would say yes, and they didn't want to do it. And because they understood that if they did it, they'd probably end up like Peter, sinking like a rock. In other words, the fear of failure is what paralyzes most churches. It's what paralyzes most Christians. One of the reasons most churches sort of turn in on themselves and slowly begin to die is they're afraid of failure. Well, what if this doesn't work? Or what if that doesn't work? We try this, but we, and, and so many times churches want to know there's an absolute certainty of success before they move on. You're not going to get a certainty of success when you step out of the boat. The only, you can do anything in the boat. Right? You can stand up in the boat or sit down in the boat. You can run around in the boat. You can have a committee meeting and a business meeting in the boat. But the only thing that works when you get out of the boat is Jesus. 
That's the only thing. And most of us as churches are not in places where we put ourselves in a place that the only thing that works is Jesus. We still have our, we still, we still want to make sure that, that we, and look, I know we need to be wise, but the church in North America is ridiculously wealthy. While we need to plant churches and replant churches and reach the globe, because we're worried about what happens if we don't have enough money. As though the money we have is something that we came up with. He gave it to us. And he gave it to us to use. Let's imagine Jesus comes back before the end of the day. And he says, how much money did you not spend that you could have spent making my word name known? It's easier to hang out in the boat and do what's familiar. But Peter gets out of the boat and he begins to sink. Well, what happens if we run out of money? Well, Peter didn't die. Jesus picked him up. And I'll tell you what, I I would want to be soaked and wet to the bone than dry and in the boat if being soaked and wet to the bone was meant I was in Jesus' arms. Put me in Jesus' arms any day and totally wet than dry and with a bunch of disciples who don't have enough faith to ask, Lord, do you want me to come? And so there you go. So Peter learned to fail. One of the greatest joys he learned in that was that my failure is never going to be the all that Jesus will pick me up in the midst of my failure. And when he did, they came back to the boat together. The whole boat worshipped God and saw him differently. That's leadership in Peter's position. Here's a man who's willing to speak first, act first, fail first. And out of his speaking, acting, and especially out of his failure, I think more than anything, if Peter had not failed, the other disciples would have thought, well, I could never do that. But they could all sink. They all could drown. (laughs) And they all saw Jesus pick him up. And they all learned that Jesus wasn't going to let him drown. And then you've got the other example where Jesus, Peter is with the, he's there at the, at Caesarea Philippi with Jesus. And who do you men say that I am? And they're saying, well, your son, you're Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the absolute description of who he is, the divine nature of Jesus. He is God here on earth. An amazing, that's blasphemy. That's total, you know, um, had some Jewish friends I uh, heard the other day say that I, we could really believe in Jesus and, and follow his teaching, except that, except that, there's no way we can say he's God, because that's blasphemous. And that was the same problem the Jewish people had in the first century. Oh, he's a great rabbi. He's a great prophet. Everything he says is great. All his wisdom is true. But he's just, he's a rabbi and a prophet. He's not God. How, that's, you can't make him God. There's only one God. He, he, he's a man. And so for Peter to say, you are the God, the only God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're standing right here with us, Jesus said, Simon Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. And Peter, you are a rock. And let's talk a minute about his name. His name was Simon. And we know that, obviously, because he's called that. And and when we talk about his house there in Capernaum, it's the house of Simon. But Jesus gives him a name. It's not a nickname. Jesus gives him a name, the name Peter, which means rock. And I think I told you before the story that John MacArthur shares about, and a lot of this information comes from John MacArthur, by the way, that John MacArthur shares about Tony Tony Lasorda and how that when Herschel... uh, um, 
Thank you. Oral Hershiser. When he, I think Herschel Walker, when Oral Hershiser came to be a pitcher, uh, he was very timid and very, very quiet. But, but, but Tony Lasorda saw that he could be an amazing pitcher. And so Tony Lasorda gave him a name. And the name he gave Oral was Bulldog. And there wasn't anything about him at that point that looked like a bulldog. But the name, he called him Bulldog to, to bring him up to what he knew his potential was. And I think in every sense of the word, that's what Jesus did with Simon Peter. You're a rock, Simon Peter. Live like it, act like it, be like it. And so he became Peter. And sometimes he's called Simon, sometimes he's Simon Peter. Some, but the, it wasn't a nickname, it was a new name. And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, there again, Peter's the first to acknowledge it. He gets it right. And Jesus says, you didn't... Know Know that, but my Father, which is in heaven, revealed that to you. Again, Peter hears from God in a way that the other disciples didn't. But in a moment, just a few minutes later, when Jesus says, I want to go to Jerusalem, Peter says, no, you can't because they'll kill you down there. And then Jesus says, what? Get the behind me, Satan. And so we see in Peter this, if you're the first to speak, you're also sometimes the first to make a mess. And, and Peter's willing to do that for the others. In every sense. And again, that reveals itself when he comes to the night in the garden. And they come, this whole group of Roman soldiers and, 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 and uh, officers from the temple come to arrest Jesus in the dark. Judas betrays him. And what does Peter do? Peter draws out his sword in an impetuous way of false boldness to defend Jesus. And he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And I, I don't think he intended to cut off the ear. He probably intended to cut off his head, but he, the soldier was quick and, and dodged, and just an ear came off. And Jesus put the ear back on and said, put your sword away. Is that a third time that Peter did something good? And then, it, I mean, they, you see this. And then, of course, Peter, he says at the night of, of when we're going to talk, we're going to have communion this morning. And at that last supper, Peter says, I will love you. I will never forsake you. Others may leave you, but I will not. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you'll forsake me three times. And before the rooster crowed, G Peter had not just forsaken Jesus, but had sworn and cussed and denied him three times. Gave three opportunities and three times he denied him. And then later after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus gives Peter three times to acknowledge that he loves him. And as I told you last week, this is important. Jesus said, Peter, after, after Peter denied him three times, and he, was in the, he was in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house. I don't, don't lose sight of the fact that even though Peter denied him, he wanted to be near him. Anybody feel conflicted like that? Anybody want to be near Jesus, but you just sometimes you just still battle sin and you're not ready to walk away, but you just, and that's Peter, man. He's in this conflict. You know, he's not going to go run and hide in the woods. He's, he loves Jesus. So he's going to stand in the shadows and see what's going on and be close to Jesus. But when the time comes to really stand up and to acknowledge who Jesus is, he denies him once, he denies him twice, he denies him three times, and then the rooster crows. And most historians, biblical stories believe, as they brought Jesus out, no doubt they saw each other, and Paul would have, or Peter would have seen Jesus, and his heart would have been crushed. And then he saw him in the upper room when, he, after, when they were on that Sunday night when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his death and resurrection. And then on the Sea of Galilee there. I mean, I could so many opportunities to talk about this. But on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus fixes them breakfast and he comes to Peter. And as I said last week, he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me with agape love? Do you love me with unconditional, never-ending, I'm never going to quit love? And here's the true quality of a leader. Peter learns from his mistakes. Some of us never learn from our mistakes, and we're never going to be leaders.
Leaders learn from their mistakes. Leaders ask questions. Peter's always asking questions. Leaders are not afraid to step out when nobody else will step out. Leaders are not afraid to fail and all of those things. And leaders learn from their mistakes. So here Jesus asked Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that morning after Jesus' resurrection, Peter, do you love me with agape? He used the word agape. And Peter says, I love you like a brother in great brotherhood. It's almost the word there is fondness. I'm deeply fond of you. I mean, there, we, we use the same word in English for I love pizza and I love my wife and I love my mother. And none of it, that just doesn't make any sense. But in Greek, there were several words, three mainly. Agape, which was the highest self-sacrificing love. And phileo, which is where you get Philadelphia brotherly love. And then eros, which is sexual love. And he said, Lord, Peter, do you love me with agape? And Peter said, I love you phileo, like a brother. Second time, Peter, do you love me? Agape. And Jesus, Peter said, I, I love you like a brother. Peter had learned not to make those bold, ridiculous statements he couldn't live up to. That was still fresh in his mind. So Jesus then says, Peter, do you love me? And he uses the word phileo. And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. And as I said last week, that's probably a reference in the book of Samuel where God knows his heart. And Peter said, I can't lie to you anymore. You know every secret of me. And then Jesus said, well, feed my sheep. Now that you're willing to acknowledge your human weaknesses, great leaders acknowledge their weaknesses. You hear about megachurch pastors who fail all of the time, or any pastor, and not be mega church, but they don't acknowledge their own weaknesses. And Peter acknowledged his weaknesses. He was not perfect, but we see in Peter this, this progression of, of, of speaking and, and leading and then failing and then learning and then returning. And then he takes all of that and he seems to learn from it all of the time. But he's still not perfect. I mean, on the day of Pentecost, he preaches and thousands come. But there's still, let's look at the book of Galatians. There's one story in the book of Galatians I want us to look at. Galatians chapter 2, talking about Paul and Peter. They're having some disagreements here. And in Galatians chapter 2, when Caiaphas uh, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they... Peter he's talking about. But when they came back, he drew and separated himself, fearing the circumcised party. So Paul is saying, look, I, I opposed Peter and Antioch because he, the, the, he was saying that you don't have to be circumcised to be a follower of Jesus. But then he was, they, 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 were, they were pushing back on him, and so he, 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 he gave in. He sort of collapsed. He, he didn't stand for the truth. Verse 13, and the problem was the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So there's a sense here in which Peter is, is defending the gospel, but yet when the pressure comes on him, he sort of backs off. And when he backs off, here's the deal. You ready? If you're a leader, people follow you. They follow you when you do well. They follow if you do heresy. They follow if you don't. They look at you if you don't. And so many times, if you follow me on social media, and sometimes I seem uh, discouraged, distraught, (laughs) questioning myself, it's because I know that if I don't make the mark, others won't either. there's, There's tremendous... I have influence. I don't want it. I... 
I, I, it, it's, 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 sometimes it's a heavy burden, but here, what Peter did didn't just affect Peter, it affected others, and what really blew their minds, it affected Barnabas. Barnabas, the most, the most faithful, full of the Holy Spirit man, and Peter's sort of his, his kowtowing to this and giving in to sound doctrine and, and, and refusing to eat meat because the, 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 the Jewish people would be upset about it. All of that, he said, even affected Barnabas. And so Paul says, when I saw that their contact was not, their conduct, this is verse 14, was not in step with the gospel, I said to him before all of them, if you, though like a Jew, live like a Gentile, and are not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He calls them out on that. I mean, and, and so even though Peter had grown and matured and done many wonderful things, he does get to a place where again, he sort of falls back into some of those habits. And I just want to make it clear to us that this side of heaven, we are not fully sanctified. And, and we're going to daily be in battle with our own flesh. And we're going to often turn back to the ways we were. And Peter understands this. Uh, he does. Um, I, I want to... I don't want to end with that. There's a couple more things. In Acts chapter 15, if you, love, if you like Bible drills, this is the Sunday to come. But in Acts chapter 15, this is after the experience there in Galatia where, where Peter really, Paul um, confronts Peter on his weakness and his leading people astray by his fear of other folks. But in, in Acts chapter 15, in verse 7, we see something happening here where Peter defends Paul. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that my mouth, by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit as they did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter became a, an apostle to the Gentiles. He became an apostle to the non-Jewish Gentiles. So that, that, that there was no difference anymore at this. And, and the reason that Paul called him out, when he got a little pressure one time, he said, well, maybe there is a difference. Maybe, you know, there is or there isn't. So Paul, Peter acknowledges here, before the Jerusalem council, his commitment. And he said, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a, placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that are neither our fathers nor we've been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all fell silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas, as they related the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And so we see here, <laughs> Paul, Peter ends up defending Paul before the Jerusalem council, even though Paul had called Peter out on his sin. Can I say that's what we want to have in a church? It's not that Peter said, well, I'm never going to talk to Paul again. He, he, he embarrassed me. He called me out. A real leader learns from his mistakes. And we see that over and over again in Peter. It's not that a real leader doesn't make mistakes. He learns from them. And he's humble. Paul, Paul makes it clear that what he did was wrong, and Peter understands it. He takes the rebuke, and when the time comes, Peter stands up and endorses Paul. What a great picture we see there in the kingdom. 
But Peter learned this, and this is where we'll, we'll bring this in for a landing today. Peter understood human weakness. He understood it well. His own weakness had been thrown in his face time and time again. Of all the things he learned, he learned courage. And I love what John MacArthur says here. The courage that caused him to swing his sword wildly at the soldier, that was an immature courage. But he learned later in life a mature, settled, intrepid wilderness, willingness rather, to suffer for the sake of Christ. And so Peter, in two wonderful letters he writes, one of them in 1 Peter chapter 5, such a wonderful truth. He says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, before the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. This is the guy who's used to being first at everything. This is the captain of everybody's team. And what has he learned in all of these years? If you humble yourself before God at the proper time, he will exalt you. Listen to this. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Paul has learned as when he went under on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus picked him up. He's learned time again as he's failed, Jesus has restored him. He's learned that he doesn't need to be afraid of anything. His great captain has his back and his side and his front. And then he says this. However, he says, verse 8. This is where this very famous text comes from. And no one knows this better personally than Peter. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This great leader, the one Jesus called the rock, that we could go time after time after time, how he was the chief of the disciples, the leader of the disciples, the first one to speak, the first one to act, all of those things. We see him also understanding now, later in his life, that the devil is this great adversary that is like a lion constantly seeking someone to devour. So he says in verse 9, resist the devil firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering you are experiencing are experienced by others in this brotherhood. And verse 10, this is from one who's been through it all. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen, and establish you. Paul gets it. He's not perfect. I got to be vigilant. I'm going to fall. I'm going to slip. Satan's this side of heaven. Satan is never going to stop trying to trap me and devour me and trick me. But if I will resist him, even the suffering I go through. And another thing, Peter knew something about suffering because you remember that one night Jesus came to him and said, Peter, Satan has come and asked to shake you to your very core. How would you like to have Jesus tell you that? I got a message for you this morning, Mark. Satan has asked me that I could shake you, I sift you like wheat. Now, we could spend a whole morning on that whole dialogue between Satan and God. That's deep. 
But the reality is, even Satan's not going to do something to you that God doesn't have power over. Satan had to ask Jesus for permission. Wow. And Jesus said, and I'm sure Satan's thinking, yeah, I'm sure you told, um, excuse me. He comes to Peter and he says, Peter, Satan has asked me to just shake you to your core. I mean, just shift you, just, just, and I'm sure Peter's thinking, great. I'm sure you told him to take a hike. And Jesus said, and this will be happening so that good things will come from it for you and for others, basically is what Jesus said. And it happened. And it just didn't happen once. It happened a lot. And I'm sure Peter began to understand that the suffering he endured was brief. The shaking was brief and it was for a purpose, as we've talked about so many times from this pulpit. He learned so much about life and that. And some of you here this morning, whether you're a leader or not, these are things we can identify with. You don't have to be the boldest person in the room to identify with this. But if you are a leader, learn from this. Learn to, learn to acknowledge your failures. Learn to embrace those failures. Learn to listen when you need to listen. Learn to forgive others. Learn to take a correction and instruction from someone who's less experienced. Paul was less experienced and less known than Peter. Paul had never walked with Jesus for 18 months. Peter had. But Paul, Peter was able to take a good instruction and correction from his brother Paul and not hate him for it, but understand the need for it. And there was a time when he sat there in that high priest courtyard. And if you go to Israel today, there are certain places in Israel that we think this happened here and we think this happened there. And I encourage you to go to Israel. I'm going to go again in a couple of years. I just encourage you to go. It's the most amazing experience. Because you can go to Capernaum. It's there. It's not like, well, maybe this is Capernaum. It's there. I mean, it, it's no longer a city, but it's an archaeological site. It's there. And the temple foundation and steps that were there in the first century are there. And so you can go set on those temple steps in Capernaum on the coast of the Sea of Galilee and know these are the steps Jesus walked up. And you can walk across that temple and know somewhere along here was Simon's house. All of a sudden, this is not some story some preacher's reading to you from a book. This has actually took place. It's actually here. And so, seeing all of that. But you can also go to, in Jerusalem, you can go to the place they have excavated that was the home of the high priest in the first century. You can go to Caiaphas' house, the, the, the ruins. And you can sit there in Caiaphas' courtyard. The very place where Simon Peter sat and denied Jesus three times. So Peter, at that night, when he had the opportunity to stand up and say, yes, I am one of his. And I said a few hours ago that while everybody else would absolutely turn on him and, and, and run from him and, and abandon him, I would never, I will give my life. So here I am. I'm, Pete, I'm Simon, the one he calls Peter, the fisherman who loves Jesus more than I love life myself. And whatever you do to my Jesus, you can do to me. Yeah, he didn't say that. He said, I don't know the man. Well, yes, you do. I've seen you with him. I told you I don't know the man. Yes, you do. You're a Galilean. Your, your accent gives you away. And then he swears like a fisherman and says, I don't know the man. And then he, he walks out and he sees Jesus and no doubt they... Make eye contact, and then the rooster crows. But something happens. 
later in Peter's life. MacArthur writes these words, and I can't say them any better than this. How does Peter's life end? We don't know. But if you want to take one more look at Scripture, look at John 21. We don't know exactly how it ends. We do know how it ends. We don't know the exact details. John 21, there by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is raised from the dead. He's meeting with his disciples. John 21. After that encounter, Peter, do you love me? The third time, feed my sheep. And then verse 18, right after feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. In verse 19, just in case you don't know what this means, the gospel writer John tells us. Listen. Then he said, to show by what he said this, to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, come and follow me. How did Peter's life end? Well, we do know he died as a martyr because Jesus prophesied in John 21, 18 and 19, you're going to give your life. Doesn't record the death of Peter, but all the records of the early church history indicate that Peter was crucified. And he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. And he's watched her being led to her death. The historian Clement says Peter called to her by name, saying, Remember the Lord. And when it was Peter's turn to die, he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die as his Lord has died. And thus he was nailed to a cross, head downward. Peter's life could be summed up in the words of his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Grow in grace... And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow. Not in your strength and in your wisdom and in your finances and in your influence and in your comfort. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the difference between the man who tried to cut off the ear of the soldier and then moments later denied he ever knew Jesus and the man who could watch his own wife head to crucifixion and say to her, remember the Lord. And then to say, I would rather be crucified upside down than to be crucified as my Lord because I'm not worthy. The difference was he had grown in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's how you handle life. That's how you grow as a believer. It's growing. It, it was knowing who Jesus was and years of growing in that grace. That's exactly what Simon Peter did. And that is why he is the rock. And he is the leader of the early church. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, be sure to subscribe to our show so the most recent episode will always be in your feed ready whenever you are. 
And secondly, if Grace Family has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description and make a donation now. And we'll see you next time on the Grace Family Podcast.